Welcome to World Wide Waste, a podcast about how digital is killing the planet and what to do about it. Jono Alderson is a philosopher of digital design, someone who thinks deeply about the problems we are facing and comes up with practical solutions. He is a digital strategist, marketing technologist and full-stack developer with two decades of experience in web development, SEO, analytics, brand and campaign strategy. In this conversation, Jono looks at the structural problems that are affecting design, such as the waterfall approach, which segments the whole design process in a very unproductive manner, on the paucity of research and the preponderance of ego. He also focuses on why web pages are getting bigger and bigger and less and less efficient. I've been looking through and kind of um, checking in on some of the what's the trends around the average size of a web page over the last X years. And it's astounding. I can, I can only find reliable data up as far as 2017. But when you look at it from 2011, 2012, 2013, it's essentially the average size of a web page is growing by about 30, 40, 50% each year. And a lot of that isn't because we're doing much more sophisticated. Or like, yes, we, we show bigger images on our screens and we're more media rich. But a lot of it is just, it's an unseen cost. So people don't think about it and they don't optimize it. Because yeah, what? Well, Okay, I'll bolt on another room onto my house. It's fine. When when it's not tangible, people don't they don't feel the pain. So yeah, it just gets more and more wasteful. Yeah, and it's like I I talked to um, there last week one of the senior uh, digital executives in Toyota, and they were saying about how Toyota historically is is obsessed with quality, um, and um, quality of the car, and they were saying for years they were wondering, you know, what does quality mean? in the web. I, I love this analogy of quality. It's one that I use a lot in the SEO world where people, so there's a real challenge that building a good website is hard and it requires a really special mix of technical expertise and strategy and forward thinking and picking the right frameworks and, and a hundred other things. And it's hard to get that right. And when people get halfway through building their website or they get somebody in to look at it when it's done, and they come back to them with a list of things that are wrong and places that it's slow. That's scary and it's upsetting. And I found, and it's exactly the same with SEO. They they miss things they by omission or by low budgets, low time, whatever. Things are wrong or don't get done. And when you present them with this enormous list of, of problems, they see it as a cost center and they see it as a competing priority against other stuff. But when you reframe those conversations to be about quality, it's something to aspire to, it's a goal to meet, it correlates with user experience and brand, it changes a lot of that perception. And yeah, I think absolutely page speed and performance and efficiency is exactly the same thing, that it all sits under this idea of quality and excellence. The problem then is I don't think there are many businesses who, if they were truly honest with themselves, do aspire to quality or actively want to invest in achieving it. They want to sell the thing they can for the most money they can with the least overhead and often that means cutting corners on this kind of stuff so even if they're aware of it it's not a priority certainly versus other areas of the business they could put that money into more paid search ads or or whatever else so you know suddenly it gets overlooked a lot i i wonder there john because you know when i think you know like most of the businesses i interact with you know whether you know in small and large and medium whether they're green grocers or whether they're 
you know, whatever carpenters or whatever. Yeah, they may not be totally mad about uh, quality, but they want to do a decent job. Like, I mean, the green grocer, the, the, the fruits aren't rotten, but, you know, usually, usually they're okay. You know, they're, they might not win, you know, a, a huge award, but they meet a minimum standard. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem like we meet minimum standards on the web. No, agreed. I'm, I'm starting to see some movement in that direction. I think um, part of the challenge around that has been visibility and education. And the tools for a long time haven't been sophisticated enough because there's a huge amount of complexity in questions like what does speed mean and how fast is fast enough and how do we break that down into things? Those are starting to get answered and standardised now. I think um, Google's really leading the way, A, with its documentation and education, but more impactfully, um, I think the Google Lighthouse tool is the first time we've ever had something that actually measures page speed in a sophisticated but also digestible way. And one of the things I've started some companies do recently is um, take their own version of that light, um, Lighthouse tool and implement what they're calling performance budgets. And they have internal systems and rules when they compile their code, when they publish their web pages. Lighthouse runs and it says, you have too much JavaScript on this page, or you've gone over the maximum size in kilobytes. And they, they decide what those budgets are and what their acceptable thresholds are. And then in theory, you stop a lot of those accidental processes where people don't think about uploading a smaller image or don't think about minifying their JavaScript. You catch a lot of the kind of incidental mistakes that people make that lead to slow websites. So I think we're starting to see that. I think that the budget idea is a very interesting idea, but somebody, I saw a tweet or something, which I really made me think about that. And I thought, you know, they said, maybe the budget, e even though it's better than no budget at all, but maybe the concept of the budget is a bad concept because because you kind of have inside you, I need to spend my budget. <laughs> Yeah, it's the same as the speed limit, right? You want to go, it's not a, how do we get it in under this? It's a, how do I put right up against this? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, what, is there another analogy that we could, because like when you, don't we need a foundational a kind of thinking that, like, let's say for most websites, static is, is more than enough because they're not changing, right? So we why do we always choose the most complex you know, we, we just need to open a letter and yet we have to have the most Swiss knife of Swiss yeah. knife. You know, it's not good enough. A, you know, an ordinary knife is not good enough for us. We mu And then we start complaining that we can't find the knife in the Swiss knife or it didn't open the letter. And yet, like if we look at this simple things like static websites, uh, static, if you go static, it, it's a simpler, it's a less complex overhead, isn't it? From from we seem to make the wrong decisions from day one, and then we we have to backtrack on those decisions because we've we've included unnecessary complexity, and then we have to try and pull back some of that complexity that was never necessary to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely some benefits to static. I think there's a risk the other way though that a lot of people don't do a good job of anticipating future needs. They build something simple and then as they think, oh, actually, I need an X or I need a widget or oh, I need to be able to accept currencies or I need to translate, then suddenly they're bolting things on. And by the very nature of it, because they weren't designed in from the beginning, they become extraneous and bulky and slow and cumbersome. And you end up with a, a Franken site 
um, which inevitably is never going to perform as well as something that was designed to do the, the right thing. But yeah, even in that, there's the assumption that um, more is good and more is better, right? When actually simplifying and doing something simple but better might be the better bet. I don't think every... It, it really frustrates me that um, every website and every e-commerce store must sell 10,000 products to 18 different markets. What if it just sold 10 products to two markets and it did it 100 times better and they invested all of that resource in better content and better marketing and more efficient systems and better customer service? I think there's a real... It, it's the same thing you were saying about the house analogy. There's, a, there's an, a, a default assumption that bigger and more is better because there's no physical or tangible cost to that realistically, um, at least not a visible one. No, but that's an interesting thing, John. I remember I was involved in a, a web consultancy back in 95, 96 and, and, uh, in, in Ireland. And, and um, you know, it, it was hard going initially. And then, and then things started getting very interesting around 98, 99. And we get inquiries in from, you know, all sorts of places like Turkey or, you know, you did it. And we were so excited. Oh, Turkey, you know. Like, isn't that great? And then, and then after the euphoria, you'd sit down and you'd say, well, how the hell are we going to do this? You know, like, like, you know, so it was a kind of like, oh, where, where, you know, and, and, and we, 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 we had one big, uh, potential job in, in San Francisco and we, we paid and went over and, and it cost us so much money and we didn't get it. We, you know, we, we didn't get the, con but it, and we realized all the time we wasted on, you know, because the web is this kind of, oh, you know, isn't it, you can deal with everyone and we we lose this sense of what you said there, the constraint. No, we, we just sell to these two countries because selling to the, we only get four orders a month from, you know, the other country and it's, and it's, and it's not profitable. And, and yeah, the cost of investment and maintaining and scaling and managing that over however many years versus the effort you could put elsewhere, the opportunity cost of that is huge. How much have you come across, um, I was about to say Google's AMP project, but just the AMP project in general, given that they've de-Googled it a bit? No, tell us more about that. Uh, so this is really interesting. I'll give you I'll give you my take on the flavour rather than the official party line, because I think it's slightly more interesting. Um, so... So Google are doing a phenomenal job on educating around page speed and performance optimization and efficiency. Like their documentation and the teams are 10 years ahead of everybody else in the space. But there is a deeper issue. So, And in theory, if every developer who was building something just read those and understood them and they're very accessible, they start right from the basics right to the very far end, um, everything would be fine and everything would be efficient. However, there is a fundamental challenge in business that um, they lack the time, the education, the motivation, the budgets, the priorities to for that to be the case. So I think Google realized that there was a problem that, that just goodwill and education couldn't solve. So they launched um, the AMP project, um, which was initially a set of constraints and a essentially a constrained flavor of HTML. And the principle was that if people cannot, and people and businesses cannot be trusted or enabled or encouraged to build performance sites, particularly in mobile, because they fill them full of JavaScript, they put loads of pop-ups in that provide bad user experiences, and they reinvent the wheel on things inefficiently and a hundred other reasons. What if they gave them a framework that wouldn't let them do that sort of thing? 
And the principle behind AMP is you cannot build a slow page. You cannot build an insecure page because there are only a certain amount of modules and tools. And what they've essentially done is reinvent HTML to be performant. Now, there were some political issues around this, around um, how much we really want to be handing Google the keys to the kingdom when they already own the data centers, the content, the data, the information, all of the processing. Do we really want to hand them the markup of our websites as well? And there were some issues around that. Um, but they did a good job of reacting to that. And now AMP is essentially an open source shared project with a governance team from people like Firefox, um, even Amazon, um, Cloudflare, a bunch of other places. And it's increasingly becoming, I think, the de facto framework for the future of performant websites. And there's a huge amount of work going on in the space, but it's still constrained. So you can't build a slow or bad website with it. Now, they're struggling to get adoption in the West because everybody's keen on building their own thing. But in the East in particular, they're seeing huge adoption because um, baked very deep into Amber things like um, when your network connection is poor, you get an offline cached version of the page, or um, it makes the right balance between server-side requests and client-side processing so that it never feels slow, even if there's a delay, and a hundred other things. And it means that in places where network connectivity hasn't historically been great and websites have been big and bulky and clunky, it's a breath of fresh air. So there's huge adoption. And I think that will spill back over here. And we'll see that actually a lot of the a lot of the mistakes that developers and businesses make when they're building sites that turn out to be slow are no longer possible to be made because they're constrained by this um, framework. So I'm pretty excited about that. We're given all these tools, we, we're given all this education, we have and yet and yet we create a terrible experience for millions and millions of people. And the experience every year is getting worse for millions and millions of people. Yep, I, I agree totally. I think um, the, the moral angle is really interesting. I think we talk a lot about things like, oh, a two second delay will half your conversion rate in the context of e-commerce. We talk a lot less about exactly that example of people who need access to content and aren't getting it quickly, but they have to sit and wait for their old Nokia phone to load eight megabytes of JavaScript that crashes because it doesn't have the CPU or the GPU capacity to deal with that monstrosity. And that's not uncommon. Um, I think so I've worked in a bunch of agencies and had some interesting perspectives across um, the process by which people decide what they're going to build and decide how the website's going to work. I don't think I've ever once seen a brand do meaningful user research at the very early stages into what they should be building for who and how and why. I think there's still a huge amount of ego involved um, in the, the CEO likes um, sliding banners on the homepage, so we're going to have a, a sliding banner. I think there's a huge propensity for people just to upgrade and replace what they already have. So there are very few people building websites for the first time now. They're um, Either either it's an existing business that's replacing and upgrading its website because they failed to plan ahead properly, or it's a, a new business copying the website of its competitors. And we're just iterating on top of this current model. There are very few people starting from scratch and saying, you know what, do we have to have a big autoplay video at the top, or is that just what everybody else does? And there's the, such a default mindset of look at my competitors or look at Amazon or look at the big players and just copy and adapt what they're doing. It's baked in really deeply. I think we need to be braver. But also there's, there's challenges around investing in that level of research because, A, it's a huge outlay in terms of budget upfront, And, B, if you're in the position where you're starting to build a new website, it's because you're feeling the pain. You've had a website that's been too old and too cumbersome and inflexible probably for the last two or three years. 
finally got the budget to deal with something about it, you're not going to want to say, you know what, stop, we're going to spend six months making sure we're doing the right thing. You're going to be under pressure to push it out the door. So yeah, people just rebuild the same bad websites over and over again. It's terrible. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's a great description, Joel. Like, I mean, so we're getting closer now to the symptoms of, you know, it, it reminds me like the, with this work I'm doing with WHO, I'm immersed in, in the whole coronavirus thing. And, and the, 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 they say, well, until, the va- until we have a vaccine, data is our vaccine. Yeah. And, and, and the only way we will uh, manage to get anywhere near the new normal is with constant testing, uh, contact tracing and, and really getting on top of any clusters or any outbreaks. So the, 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 the countries that are really successful at this test, 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 <laughs> trace, 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 trace. So the idea that you would go to you know, Singapore or Hong Kong or, or Taiwan and, and, and say, hold on a minute, we don't have time for testing. We start. We have to start building stuff. <laughs> you know, what, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's this stuff about about research? You know, the, the, the CEO has had a dream last night and and thought that if we did this in this color with with React, and, and, you know, wouldn't be that wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, I mean, nobody would nobody would you, you'd be locked up. You'd be sent to the mental hospital if you said that in a in a meeting uh, for for pandemic. And yet that's the way web teams operate. That's the way web management operates. That's. You know, oh, we we don't have time to do it right. We only have time to do it wrong. Yes, yeah, I, and I, 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 there must have been dozens of times in agency life where I heard words to that effect, and it becomes the norm because everything's a scramble, and it's that's how you survive, which is a, a terrifying state of being. And is there any sign of that? Because, like, you don't survive by constantly scrambling. You like, you know, we end up with more and more inferior stuff. And of course, we see that the things that do succeed, whether we like them or not, are the Amazons, are the Kahookals, are, are the Facebooks, are the, you know, that, that don't overdo the ridiculous uh, smiling banners. I mean, imagine if, imagine if, if, if you went to Google and you saw a big <laughs> bunch of people laughing at you saying, we're having a wonderful experience searching. You should try it too. <laughs> With an awful stock photo. Yeah, I can picture it. You know, oh, yeah. it wouldn't, it, like, it's funny that the, the, the organizations that are not learning these lessons are, are dying out. In, in They just don't notice it. Is there any sign that the culture is changing, that a you know, a more methodical, because, you know, you see, part of Google's success is that rigorous uh, engineering, methodical type of approach to things. And part of Amazon's success is that rigorous, like Amazon would have, you know, 200 pages in testing at any one, at any one point in time. So it's like these organizations are, are openly telling the secrets of how they became successful. Yep. And yet, 90% of organizations are looking at them and saying, that's interesting. Let's do a big banner. Yes, yes, they are precisely. I wonder um, I wonder how much, <laughs> well, talking about getting to root causes, I wonder how much capitalism is the problem here, that you either have a self-funded business, which is bootstrapped or otherwise, which has finite time and resource and focus and probably can't 
invest in extensive research and testing over whatever product work they're doing. Or you have the VC model where you have a thousand of these businesses pop up and one of them wins by chance and then through funding and whatever suddenly has enough to do testing and become the next Amazon, but the rest fail. And I don't really see a middle ground. If you're starting out, it's very, very rare to have enough budget or resource or other constraints to be able to do this level of research well. Um, yeah, that, that's tricky. So let, let's go through, you know, we're, we touched on uh, some things, but say you, uh, you send me a list of stuff about around, say, one of the areas you said around tactics, reducing existing waste. Where, you know, give it a fire of some things that, like, let's say a, a, a developer that really wants to, to embrace this new new I don't know if it's a new way of thinking, but a kind of <laughs> the, the more uh, what I call the art experience rather than because all of this, you know, has major implications for energy consumption and waste production. Yes, and stuff like So and, and it's growing every year. So let's say, you know, reducing waste uh, will create lighter pages, uh, it, it, uh, less content, easier to read. Easy, all sorts of good things are going to happen. So, so fire, fire some ideas in, in specifically how you would reduce waste, whether it's in JavaScript, whether it's in, you know, CSS. What, what, you know, give us some ideas of, of, of waste reduction. Sure. I mean, I just want to step back for a second and focus on something you said first, just to frame that. I think it was really interesting you said um, new this new thinking, and maybe it's not new. I don't think it is at all. I think that historically we were focused on this because internet connections were slow and shipping lots of kilobytes just wasn't viable. I think we've lost a lot of that. And part of that, when we start to look at where the opportunities are, is because um, web development has become much more verticalized. And we now have quite wide distances between people who do front-end, people who do back-end, people who do JavaScript, people who do design. And then gone are the days of the sole webmaster who had an eye on all of this and, and knew which levers he could pull to reduce this bit in favor of this bit. I think that's what we need to get back to. So the thing I always do when I start looking at performance is zoom right out and just look at how the page loads. And there are a hundred tools to do that from Google's Lighthouse I've mentioned to things like web page test. But the absolute best one I find for um, easy wins and tactics is um, the browsers themselves. So Chrome, Firefox, others all come with a built-in set of developer tools, which you can open up and it's like press F12 in Chrome on the Windows machine. And the network tab in that will show you the things on the page loading. And sure, there's, there's detail in there that you can't see in the back end and things about how it works, but you'll start to get a very quick idea of where the bottlenecks. And the one... The one north star across all the tactical opportunities you're looking for and finding is that the critical concept is to remove bottlenecks. Because if one thing is slow to load and holds up other stuff, that whole cascade of everything that happens next is slower, and that impacts everything else that happens. So um, using those network console um, overviews and, and waterfall charts to find things like um, this particular JavaScript file um, is huge or this particular CSS is slow, you can start to unpick those. And you can do things like um, minifying those files, or rather than having one enormous JavaScript file that loads everything on the site, you try and break it into pieces so that any given page only has and only loads the code it needs. In fact, um, in Chrome's developer console, there's a really nice report you can rummage out called the coverage report, 
And when you load the page, it records what percentage of the CSS and JavaScript in your files was used on this page. And you go, wow, I like, so we've got this um, piece of JavaScript that loads a loads our search box. And actually, only 10% of that code is being used on the homepage. Do we really need all of this in here? It turns out these features are only used on our contact form, for example. You break all of that out into pieces. Um, Historically, that wasn't a good strategy because um, it made more sense to send everything at once to the client than have it all cached. In modern browsers and modern tech, it's much more efficient to send lots of little things than it is to send one big thing. So wherever you are breaking things up into smaller pieces makes much more sense. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the Google developer docs that go through individual tactics like um, using up-to-date libraries and stuff, which probably isn't worth me focusing on. But there's one thing that I think is really interesting to touch on which is to remember that the other side of the cost is that your browser, whether it's Chrome or Firefox, whatever it is, is a piece of software running on a machine with physical hardware, your computer, your laptop, and that has a CPU, it has a power supply, it has a graphics card. And the way in which the page is built will utilize resources from them. So um, if you have an incredibly heavy website that ships a ton of JavaScript to the end user and you offload all the posts into them, your, your, um, your CPU and your electricity usage are going to spike while your computer processes and renders and manages that page. And that comes with a cost. So it's not just about what you're transferring. It's also you've got to understand how your system is processing and running that. And again, um, things like Google Chrome Console has some really nice reports on this. And you can see things like this particular JavaScript thread or process took a lot of system resources or was slow. And you can start to um, remove those. But yeah, it's really just about eyeballing those, those overviews and finding the bits which are obviously bulky or cumbersome and then chipping away at them. And that'll be different for everybody, but it's always about chipping away at the, the, the big stuff. Really great practical information there. And, and, and you've identified a couple, a couple of crucial concepts. One, one of them being that it's not simply uh, the volume that's been transferred. It's, it's, it's the type of thing that's been transferred as well that, you know, um, JavaScript will have a much greater overall impact than than HTML or, or content because yeah. it, it ends up calling on the, the processor when it when it gets into the person's machine. So there's there's the code, you know, has a 10 times or a 20 times bigger overall impact than than its weight footprints. And so you need to be very conscious of that. Absolutely. And then there's other things like, um, though I, I, I still find this remarkable that so few websites have efficient caching policies for their resources, that if an average user is browsing around your site, you don't want them reloading your logo, your CSS, your images on every page that they're on. You want the browser to save those and just pull it out of local storage, and then none of that transfer happens. It's one of the easiest things in the world to switch on. It's a couple of lines of server configuration. You say, if it's a JPEG, store it for a year, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. These things are really easy to configure, but few people do it because, um, because I think all these development teams are very verticalized and it's the front end people are focused on the CSS and the design. The back end people are focused on the databases and the structure. Nobody is looking at how all of this works together and where it creates bottlenecks. I see all sorts of examples where, for example, um, a team will adopt a shiny new JavaScript framework like a Vue or a React and they'll build something which in a perfect world is super fast. It, yes, okay, it, it They've already made some interesting trade-offs with those kinds of packages where those transfer a lot of JavaScript to the end client, 
But then everything that happens next is quite fast and efficient. So there's a trade-off there. But what they don't consider is things like, okay, when the site launches, the marketing team is going to want to add a whole bunch of tracking and analytics. And if they haven't considered that and baked in support for that, suddenly you've got a slow site because, again, you're, you're not predicting the future well enough and you're adding on extraneous stuff. So all of this has to, you have to look at it from the very top level from the outside in and say, across all of the front end and back end, how do all these things interact and where does that create bottlenecks? And that, that requires a different type of approach to development, I think. Well, it seems that, John, your biggest recommendation is is not about about software or code, but rather about organizational behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and saying, how do we make sure that we, we, we bet on the right horse when it comes to frameworks or platforms? How do we not get distracted by shiny things? How do we set meaningful, reasonable budgets? How do we educate our teams so that they even understand the concept that they ought to pick the right file format for an image? Should should this photo of my happy people smiling on the front of Google be a PNG or a JPEG? Or even maybe a GIF or, or a WebP or something else entirely. And there are there's knowledge and logic and decision trees for that and a thousand other things. I think um, one of the things I've seen well in organizations is a kind of a performance ops role where somebody who has an understanding across all of this just dips into and out of other areas. Now, that's, that's hard. It's the same kind of challenges that we see in SEO and CRO that you're kind of parachuting a unicorn into teams doesn't scale well. But that, if you if you can find those right people, then that's a, a good way of solving it. Otherwise, it's a whole load of education in teams. Right. But staying with that for a moment, the, 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 something's wrong because I'm trying to get to the foundation that's driving out the the bad designs, you know, because we can we can uh, deal with the out, output and say, oh, we need to fix all these things. But if we get to the foundational and I think foundationally, you're indicating that the current model of, of you know, uh, management and organizational structure is wrong. Like it, it reminds me of the scientific area where they've discovered that, you know, that, that, that now we've got, if you go back a hundred years ago, um, most scientific papers were about one author. Uh, n- now, now, ah, yes. now scientific papers have got 5,000 authors. <laughs> yes. You know, in, all in, doing and they're all, but, but they're working. If they're doing the Higgs bosom, they, they, they don't just have all, um, you know, quantum physicists, et cetera. They have biologists. They've, you know, they're bringing in people with different perspectives because what they find, what they're finding is that uh, multidisciplinary collaboration uh, is creating better science. You know, in, in a very complex world, you cannot, uh, if you get your PhD in physics, you've had to go deep because you know it's like you know in a way if it was in literature you had to do it on on uh shakespeare's little toe you know because because yes. the knee had been written about the ties had been, <laughs> like everything in fact you probably have to do it on the nail of the little toe you know to, <laughs> Ultra niche. to, to get your but but then you know, nobody wants you. Nobody's interested in hearing about the nail on the little toe. You know, you need to start working with the person who did uh, the little toe, uh, the big toe, you know, to actually say something interesting. So while they get their PhDs by by d- diving extraordinarily deep to be useful, they have to collaborate. They ha- and, yes. and 
so what what people are saying is the best products are coming uh, from multidisciplinary and yet we don't see seem to see that in the web we seem to see this this uh, we're going the opposite direction from an organizational and a management structure where scientists have found this doesn't work this won't lead you to good new innovative science good new products so um, if we had a model where the uh, the developers were more exposed to the marketers to the content people yep. etc you know that would be, so to speak, less efficient in the sense of churning out code, <laughs> but 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 quality. Turn the right code out. Exactly. So you know, how would we have you thought about what the perfect organizational model would be for quality? Yeah, quite a lot, and I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think you cannot produce a good website with a waterfall process. And many of the agencies who build websites, and many of the in-house teams who've been built to this, still do. They start off with let's get somebody to draw some boxes and something representing a, a, a go at the UI design, a UX design. Let's get some designers to design it. Let's hand it to some developers to build it. Oh crap, nobody's written any words. Let's hand it to the content people to populate it. And now let's test it and maybe put some SEO and some analytics in. And every website comes out of this factory line and it's defunct. And there's some really, really common problems that causes. And you'll see this sort of stuff all the time where this disconnect means that those stages don't join up. You'll see a design that looks beautiful, but when you click on a button, the whole page will jank and distort as the next thing loads. And that's because the designers drew something pretty and then the developers built something that works in a certain way and there was no overlap between them. So, okay, how should transitions between states work? And that's a really interesting example where once upon a time that factory line model worked, but as the web became more fluid and as we unlocked the capabilities of JavaScript to look at things like uh, websites that look at, hey, more like applications with animation, with transitions, with um, tabs and sliding content, it's really hard to bridge that gap between design and development in a linear process because the designers don't understand what's possible and how the technical mechanisms of it work. And the developers don't understand necessarily the importance of things like fluid um, fluid transitions between states where you don't just uh, move something, you, you consider decreasing velocities as it moves across, that sort of thing. So I think um, something resembling a holocratic team structure can work much better where you have a designer, a front-ender, a back-ender, a tester, a content person, all working on either on the whole thing or maybe just on components. And you make sure that when the designer's drawing it, that they've considered, oh, actually, there might be quite a lot of content to fit in here. Or what happens when there's no content? And then the developer starts asking, okay, how do we reframe this? And we maybe move it somewhere else on the page and that gets patted back to the designer and you end up creating something much more robust. Now that, as you point out, that does take... 10 times longer and it quite often can cost a lot more but what you build is quality and it works and it's considered and uh, you need a lot of governance to make sure that people don't end up going down rabbit holes and you end up with a whole new set of problems of management and scheduling and how how do we how do we make all these different teams align towards one thing it's a much a very different challenge but you end up with something much better but but john i wonder is it 10 times longer because let me tell you some of my experiences over the years when of course i'm i would champion research because that's my core area to, you yeah. know figure out what's first but i used to I, and i still do a lot of work with a really interesting company in norway called netlife research and they said that that 
when they looked at the overall life cycle of, of their projects over a number of years, they've got about 100 people or so that uh, working for them. They, they found that the ones that did comprehensive research at the start actually got, were at least as quick than, than the ones that didn't do the research because what didn't happen was you know, all the second guessing or all the, the manager comes in with the bright idea or, or yes. oh, we forgot about this, we need to add this or, you know, or, or 12 months later, we need to do a redesign because we didn't think about this. That actually, the wasn't it Einstein that said, you know, if I had an hour, uh, if somebody said, you've only got an hour to, to, to solve this equation, you know, I'd spend 50 minutes thinking. Find the and, and, and in the pro, that, Sometimes this upfront organizational effort uh, often means a, a much smoother production cycle and much more efficient writing of code and less code and less etc. That, because that's the thing, Jonah, that people say to you, oh, we'd love to do this, but we don't have time. It'll take 10 times longer. But it's not always 10 times longer. Sometimes it's actually the shorter way to get the actual project done in, in a quality way. I, I definitely agree. I've seen, I've seen it definitely done. Uh, projects definitely run faster because of the, you avoid all of that that down. I think um, what definitely is real though is the the fear of that time frame. And I think it's a lot easier for a CEO or a stakeholder to say, actually, no, hold the course. Even though we know this is inefficient, it's it's known and understood. And yes, our deadlines are arbitrary, but there are these other pressures, and we've got this board of investors, and we've said it will be done on July, whatever. And they go, actually, no, I'd rather have the devil I know than risk risk trying to do it better and failing. And I, I, I wonder how you fix for that organizational chance because because not making a mistake is what like senior stakeholders, their job is to not make mistakes, not to succeed wildly, but to not make mistakes. And that's hard to change. And I think it's not even that. It's, you know, it's that not to be seen to be doing stuff. Like, it's like, it's like because they're making mistakes and they're getting rewarded and says, you know, it's like um, you're producing. And if it's crap, you're still producing. Like over the years, I have seen more careers, you know, um, made based on things launched than things yeah. improved. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and, then, and when you, say, when you, you look at the long term impact of that, how many... How many businesses have you ever seen who've launched a new website and out the door, the conversion rate is doubled overnight? I, I can count very few because they didn't do that initial research, etc. So they've relaunched a, another bad version of the same bad website. And then they'll spend the next five years changing the banner and the color of the buttons, trying to make it perform. When, yeah, if they'd done that research properly and built the right thing, they may well have you know, springboarded it uh, at launch and already been far ahead of where they would have been. So it's not just the time, but it's the, the impact as well. well the impact, and in my experience, Jonah, I've often found the opposite that, you know, yeah. these big... Built the wrong thing. The, the conversion rate drops or the, yeah. you know, that that in the... pro. So, let, you know, we're getting near kind of the end and we've covered some great stuff, but what I want to really hammer at is how we would begin to get the framework of, hey, this isn't quality. You know, what is quality? Like, because in, in, in industrial engineering, and they've established what is a quality door, what is a quality window, what's a quality car, what's a quality, you know, they've, you, you can't do crazy stuff. You can't just set up the, the Toyota production line and start and say to the manager, look, 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 we're producing loads of stuff. You know, like, 
and we're using all the latest techniques as well <laughs> you know and you know we, we, we've been you know that won't cut it in and and like uh toyota now is rigorously managing quality in its web environment in watching how p fast pages are downloading and and the actual experience what's the mobile experience like and, and so I wouldn't say Toyota have got it perfect, but they're really they're really talking and thinking about about quality. So what what could we put? Is it you know the budget? I think there's something underneath that. What could we what? So we know that the multidisciplinary team, right, is yeah. is there. Uh, that's going to be a key to success. But what are they going to look at on a Monday morning? What are they going to look at on a Tuesday morning and say, yeah, we're meeting quality standards. Yeah, we're heading, you know, uh, what's, and I don't know the answer. <laughs> you know, what, uh, even to begin to get that idea that says, you know, that there's some sort of a path to that we define what quality is. And, and then we measure it on an ongoing basis and, and, and the red light starts flashing and says, hey, 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 you're packing too much, too much JavaScript into this, this file or something like that. What sort of model? Multidisciplinary team is an organizational one that will get us more quality in a complex environment. Any idea of work practices or, 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 or measurement systems that could you know, begin to frame the quality thinking from the very beginning of the process rather than it being some sort of a, an urgent rescue mission at yeah, the definitely. end of it. And I think um, the, the lazy answer is that there's um, a huge team of much smarter people than me who've already been working on this for a while, and that's Google's AMP team. I think this is the problem they're trying to solve because you can't you can't define what performance standards look like without standardization. And the web lacks standardization. I think if you asked a thousand web developers, um, which image format should you pick? Going back to that previous example for, that, for, for any given image, you get a thousand different answers. If you ask, when should links be underlined? You get a thousand different answers. If you ask, what is a banner? You get a thousand, or what is the best? Backend framework for serving a progressive web, a thousand different answers. And all of these people are making a thousand small decisions on the fly about the thing they're building every day. Okay, today we're building a contact form. Should we left align the labels against the fields? Should we put the labels inside the fields? Should we change the size of the. All of these things are decided either in the design phase by designers for aesthetics or by developers on the fly as they encounter challenges. And until we get some kind of standardization underneath that, that's going to continue to be the case. So I think we need a base framework that answers questions like, what is a banner? How should a calendar widget work? How should site search respond when I click on the input field? Those kinds of things. And that is the heart of what Google's AMP project is doing. Um, well, maybe maybe there's something, and I, I keep coming back to this, John, in, in other conversations about the the Microsoft model, their, their reward model of how they uh, do individual reviews. Now, there used to be a model where it, it was just it was all about what you did, what you created over the last six months or twelve months. So now they've broken it up into three segments. I, I think this is a, a generally a very interesting idea concept. So the first part of the conversation is what you produced right uh, so one third of your bonus or re review is for that but the second uh, third of your value to Microsoft is what did you oh, reuse nice, nice. So, 
So what did you, what did you reuse? Uh, and the third part of the bonus is what did you yeah. share? You know, so it's looking at that triumvirate of, of you know, that we've a culture which rewards yes. produce. And, and so many people right. are reinventing the wheel unnecessarily. So that, I love this. Um, so I am, I am as, as unsurprisingly um, a huge word person nerd. And that's a big part of why I work at Yoast. It's because I really believe in the idea that um, like this piece of software that powers a third of the web, that there are tens of thousands of people collaborating on and contributing to and tweaking and helping evolving can become this thing that we share and collaborate and reuse and improve. Now, it has a lot to answer for at the moment. There are certainly areas where performance is not one of the things it does amazingly out of the box, but it's moving in the right direction, both technically and politically. I think this idea that rather than every single company and agency building everything from scratch and making the same mistakes and invested wasting the same resource. We talk a lot about the waste of bytes transferred. I'm really upset about the amount of hours that people spend building calendar widgets and search boxes and um, creating tag systems for blogs and building authorship logic. All of this exists. These are all solved problems. I think almost all of technical SEO, to pick on an example, is a solved problem. Yeah, I did some research, I think, the year before last, and I, I asked, a whole bunch of SEOs, um, what proportion of your time is spent fixing things that should never have been broken due to systematic failures? Things like re um, fixing broken links or redirecting pages that poor for or tweaking meta tags. These are all things that are documented, that are either binary right or wrong, that shouldn't be wrong. And there's something like $10 million a month just in the US, just in technical SEO. Um, burnt on hours of these people fixing this stuff. So if we can redirect some of that energy and say, yeah, rather than creating things badly again and again, can we consolidate on standards and improving shared resources and build on top of each other's work? And that's, that's a huge part of what my day job is uh, at Yoast and working on, on bits of WordPress core as well is saying, how do we make these things more efficient? Um, there's some really cool stuff happening in that space. We're working at the moment on a standard for um, loading web custom web fonts more efficiently. And when you look at some of the inefficiencies in websites, custom web fonts are one of the biggest issues. So we're asking the question, how do we create a universal standard that allows people to do this right and performantly without having to get way down into the nuts and bolts? And there's a whole bunch of other projects going on, but that's the sort of thing that I find really exciting because we work together to fix these things. I think that's as good a way, you know, to to end as uh, as any on a whole on a hopeful note you know because um you know th th that sort of culture because it is a cultural thing of of it's cool to reuse it's cool to share it's 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 an ego thing it's a, it's a you know the, the the we need to change that culture and 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 it's great to see that that yourself and other people are you know, a kind of trying to shift the because there's something deep in this that's driving this. You know, that's you know, it's it's um, these behaviors are they're coming from a deep sort of cultural well, and we need to change the water in the well. I think. Yes, I see a huge resistance to the sharing culture um, because from from agencies who do a lot of this kind of work, they. Um, they can't or say they can't and refuse to do work which isn't billable. Like they, they live or die on what percentage of our hours drive direct money from our clients. So as soon as you start saying, you know what, would you mind taking 10 or 20% of your time 
and collaborating on the shared frameworks that all of these people use, even though that would benefit them and everyone else in, in the long term, they, they won't justify the expenditure. And then all the in-house people and people who are doing it themselves are very reluctant to do work which will also benefit their competitors because they see that as a risk. So even, even though you know you want there was the water rises in the harbor, all the boats rise, they they see that as a competitive risk. So they would rather reinvent the wheel badly themselves than collaborate and share in a way that benefits other people as well, which is really upsetting. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, I've published a book called Worldwide Waste. You can find out more at jerrymcgovern.com slash www. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversational community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can join the Slack community and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Or join the HCD newsletter, where you can win books and get updates. Subscribe to our content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And listen to any of our design podcasts, such as Getting Started in Design, Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion, Prod Pod with Adrian Tan and Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook. Thanks for listening and see you next time.